0: You're listening to Calvin's Institutes, Lesson 17. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Well, we come at last to Calvin's Doctrine of Election, for which he is famous or infamous, depending on who you're talking to. As I was uh, looking over my my notes for uh, this lecture, it really is more than I can do in one hour and a few minutes. But I think we'll take our time on this one, because even if we need to go into um, next class, uh, we need to um, spend uh, some time with this, because it's often misunderstood, and at least we want to have Calvin's view of it, exactly what Calvin taught. uh, Then we can make up our own minds as to whether he's right or not, so we'll be a bit relaxed and take our time uh, on this topic. Um, The next topic, which is resurrection, Calvin's eschatology, Uh, we can cover fairly quickly. Calvin is famous for his treatment of election, but uh, not so famous for his treatment of eschatology. Not that it's unimportant, but, um, well, we'll see uh, when we get to it uh, what uh, needs to be said about that topic. But a good A good bit needs to be said about this topic. So, with that uh, word of um, introduction, uh, let's turn to prayer, using again a prayer from Calvin and an appropriate prayer for this subject that we're going to be talking about today and next time. Let us pray. Grant Almighty God, that as thou hast been pleased to adopt us once for all as thy people, for this end, that we might be engrafted, as it were, into the body of thy Son, and so be made conformable to our head. O grant that through our whole life we may strive to seal in our hearts the faith of our election, that we may be the more stimulated to render thee true obedience and that thy glory may also be made known through us. And those others also whom thou hast chosen together with us, may we labor to bring with us, that we may with one accord celebrate thee as the author of our salvation, and so ascribe to thee the glory of thy goodness, and having cast away and renounced all confidence in our own virtue, we may be led to Christ as the only fountain of thy election, in whom also is set before us the certainty of our salvation through thy gospel, until we shall at length be gathered with him into that eternal glory, which he has procured for us by his own blood. Amen. I was reading a novel recently, and I came across this sentence character in this novel is that I was like a lost soul in a Calvinist world damned before birth for no fault of my own but nonetheless contemptible to the suspicious company of the elect you can find statements like that in popular writings uh, frequently because Calvinism is identified with election and not only identified with election but identified with a very um, twisted view of election, as we find in this quotation. I'm teaching a Sunday school class at Central, and we're looking at the institutes uh, in this class, and one of the members of the class uh, told me that um, whenever he tells people at work that he's studying Calvin, Calvin's institutes, they're quite... uh, startled by that, and if the person knows anything at all about Calvin, uh, the person will say, well, isn't he the fellow that believed in predestination? (laughs) So, that uh, is a reputation that Calvin has received. Here's a cartoon I found some time ago called uh, Great, Great Moments in church history, Calvin invents predestination, there he is. Uh, these jugs are have labels like uh, total depravity, uh, irresistible grace, limited atonement. He's mixing these things together. Of course, the um, cartoon, which is uh, pejorative, doesn't really... Get it all wrong because down here's a Bible and a candle, and um, that's the source of Calvin's uh, teaching. And another thing to say about this is that Calvin's doctrine of predestination was quite unoriginal. The reputation that Calvin has as the person who invented uh, predestination is really quite a false one. If you study the reformers, you see the exact same teaching in Luther and uh, in Melanchthon and in Bucer and in Zwingli, although each one will put it in his own words, uh, nonetheless the same teaching in all the essentials is present uh, in all of those reformers and If you go back before the Reformers in the radical Augustinians of the medieval period like Thomas Bradwardine or Gregory of Remini, uh, you can find the same teaching. And then if you go back far enough, you come to St. Augustine and uh, Calvin is certainly deriving most of uh, what he is saying from Augustine. He says in 322.8, if I wanted to weave a whole volume from Augustine, I could readily show my readers that I need no other language than his. In the 19th century, Charles Hodge was teaching and writing at Princeton. He preferred to use Augustinianism to Calvinism because he felt Calvinism, the word, was so misused and misunderstood that uh, he would... I call the system of theology that he was presenting, which indeed was Calvinism, Augustinianism, because it comes originally, as far as post-biblical authors are concerned, from St. Augustine. But St. Augustine got his teaching uh, from the Bible, from Scripture, and uh, that's what Calvin maintains. He says, let us imagine that these fathers are silent. In other words, if, if nobody in all of church history had taught this doctrine, we could still pay attention to the matter itself by turning uh, to the Bible and certainly uh, to the Apostle Paul. So, first thing... I'd want to say is that um, Calvin is profoundly unoriginal in his teaching. Of course, not everyone in church history had taken that Augustinian, Pauline Augustinian track, but um, Calvin follows in the footsteps of some great people who did. And as you look at the 16th century reformers, uh, he's in good company there when we look at uh, Calvin's uh, doctrine, we realize that it was already present in 1536, so it's not something he adds as he makes the revisions to his institutes, it's really we have seen are not so much revisions as enlargements, but by 1559 the doctrine has a much more uh, developed uh, place, much fuller statement. Calvin wrote his commentary on Romans in 1540, so that comes after the first two editions of the Institutes, 1536 and 1559, and you could You can imagine how careful exegetical study of Romans is going to give uh, further insight uh, to Calvin on this teaching. And then through his uh, career as a reformer in Geneva, he entered into a number of uh, controversies with uh, people uh, related uh, to uh, this doctrine. Controversy with Bolsek, controversy with Pigeusk and some others as well, and in that polemical situation where Calvin is uh, being forced to answer attacks on the doctrine of election, uh, he develops his thought uh, further uh, in those ways uh, as well. So the the doctrine of um, Calvin uh, is present. 1536, but much more developed and much fuller in 1556. Another uh, point we need to make is the surprising location of the doctrine, and I've kind of um, anticipated this from time to time by saying Calvin could have treated the election here, book one, could have treated it in Book 2, but he treats it in Book 3 and toward the end of Book 3. It's not in Book 1. Book 1 is the knowledge of God, the Creator. The way that election could have functioned in Book 1 would have been like this. There is a God and that God has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, and uh, that would include providence and predestination, and predestination would include election and reprobation, certainly a way uh, to look at this doctrine. God is eternal God, and uh, even before you get to the doctrine of creation, you could talk about the decrees of God in the fact that God has planned all things, and all things would have to mean all things, not only in providence, but in predestination. Earlier theologians, such as uh, Thomas Aquinas, had followed that pattern. If you look at the Summa of Thomas, uh, you'll see that he treats predestination in the doctrine of God as a special application of providence in the Summa, book 1 chapter 22, still talking about God, the doctrine of God. Thomas deals with providence and then chapter 23 with predestination. Providence is the bigger category. God plans, decrees, brings into action in time everything that comes to pass. And part of that is the election and reprobation of individuals. So, before Calvin, this is the way that it was often uh, done. And after Calvin, it's a way that it's often done. The prime illustration of that would be the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, of God and of the Holy Trinity, and then chapter 3 of God's eternal decrees before we get to creation. It's not an improper order by any means, but it's not the order that Calvin chooses. Calvin here in 1559 postpones the formal treatment of this doctrine until book 3, Now, let's look at something we have seen already, the shifts and additions of material in the five chief Latin editions of the Institutes. Don't expect you to be able to read that up there, but uh, I can point out what I'd like for you to see. Uh, 1536, 1536, Calvin does treat uh, predestination, it's right here, Um, there's no separate uh, section, but it's present um, in, this is chapter 2 of the chapters, six chapters in 1536, that's the chapter on faith, and this is his um, treatment of the Apostles' Creed, and down at the end of his treatment of the Apostles' Creed, he has um, election and predestination. And then in, this is 1539, uh, we get um, a separate uh, section. Uh, Here it is, section 8 in 1539, uh, after Old Testament, New Testament, Well, here's repentance, here's justification by faith, here is his treatment of Old Testament and New Testament, both the likenesses and the differences, and then he comes to predestination and providence, Uh, those two uh, together in 1539, treating predestination first and then providence. And then we come uh, to the editions here 1543 through 1550 uh, we see that he keeps that order he moves this around a bit a bit later uh, in these editions but uh, there is still a predestination coming first and then uh, the doctrine of providence but then notice what happens in 1559 here's the final edition that we have been reading Uh, quite a a dramatic uh, shift uh, in the material in 1559 because then providence which has followed predestination is moved up into book one and we studied that very early on when we talked about the doctrine of god god is creator and god is the god of providence And at that point, Calvin says, I could have spoken about predestination here, but I'm not yet ready to do that. And where does he put it? Well, he puts it way down here in Book 3, toward the end of Book 3. So uh, there's some significant uh, shift in his uh, ordering uh, of the material. And uh, Calvin has uh, told us, as you recall, that... um, he was not satisfied with his order, his arrangement, until 1559. He was very concerned about that. And it was not until 1559 that he felt uh, that he got it uh, right. So where does it show up? It shows up in soteriology, not in theology proper. It shows up in soteriology, the way in which we receive the grace of Christ think back to um, book 3 Holy Spirit faith repentance justification prayer and uh, just before eschatology comes election Calvin I think um, is very aware of what he's doing here it's not just a place to put this doctrine because he has to treat it some place. But uh, he puts it under salvation within the context of the Christian life. Remember the last part of justification was the freedom of the Christian. And then from that he moves into prayer. And from prayer he moves into election. Which at least gives us a hint that Election in Calvin, this doctrine of election, Calvin intends for us to understand it within the context of the experience of the Christian life. It's really linked to Christian living. It's part of Christian living. And that's where we should put it, or can put it. Calvin is not going to say, you can't talk about this doctrine in any other context, but in the Institutes, this is where uh, he would like uh, for it to function. I had not been aware of what seems to be a very nice connection between prayer and election until reading through this material again this time. Remember 3.20, uh, Book 3, Chapter 20, True Prayer. And uh, as we think about it, as we try to sum up what Calvin said in that long chapter, we could say something like this, that prayer uh, casts away all thought of our own glory and worth and self-assurance and in humility, uh, gives glory completely to God. Because Calvin stresses humility, sincerity, uh, all of those uh, topics related to prayer. We can't be proud and boastful and pray at the same time. That's why we can kneel to pray because it sets forth the fact that God is everything and uh, everything we receive, we receive uh, from His good hand. Then you move into election and it teaches the same thing. The gratuitousness of God's grace and our total emptiness before him so there's not a real jolt going from prayer to election Uh, unless you had read carefully through chapter 20 and just looked at the outline you might think well these are two quite different topics but uh, one relates um, to the other. So the the function then uh, in Calvin for the doctrine of election uh, is something we need to look at uh, now. don't think we would want to say that predestination is the central dogma in Calvin. We really haven't found a, a central dogma. We found a lot of crucial doctrines. But uh, Calvin doesn't organize his theology around the decrees of God any more than he organizes his theology around the doctrine of the covenant, although both are essential and crucial to his understanding of theology. I like uh, the quotation uh, that I have um, put in the syllabus. It comes from Vondell's book on Calvin. He's quoting someone else. But I think it gets it right. Predestination is a long way from being the center of Calvinism, at least of Calvin's Calvinism. Much rather, it is the last consequence of faith in the grace of Christ in the presence of the enigmas of experience. Now, I'll unpack that uh, sentence uh, for you, but I think it's a profound one. Calvin's uh, treatment of election completes the doctrine of salvation. He's talking about salvation, soteriology, book three, and uh, he completes it with the doctrine of election. There will be one more final note, eschatology, heaven. So in one sense that's the completion but uh, even prior to that, uh, there is this great uh, completing doctrine of God's election, which is saying really one thing, and that is salvation is totally of God. That's what Calvin is saying uh, in these chapters. Salvation is totally of God. Uh, this is how he puts it at the beginning in 321 1 we shall never be clearly persuaded as we ought to be that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know his eternal election. If we don't know this doctrine, we're not going to have confidence that God has saved us freely by his mercy. There will be the the temptation to inject a human effort and human desert uh, into the doctrine of salvation. I like the way uh, Warfield explains it in an article that he did on Calvin and the Reformation. Warfield said, When you teach free grace, absolutely free grace, and mean it, you are a predestinarian. So if you're going to teach free grace, really teach free grace, and really mean it, then you have to embrace the doctrine of predestination. We looked uh, earlier at uh, one way in which this doctrine can be taught, and that is to view it as part of the doctrine of God, the decrees of God, not an improper way, but um, it's not what Calvin chooses to do here. You might say here is an outline of a little chart of what Calvin does. He's talking about grace, which is soteriology, and uh, an implication of grace is election, and an implication of election is reprobation. I'll explain what I mean by that um, either later today or next time. But context of grace, and uh, if you really teach free grace, Orfield said, and Calvin would agree, and really mean it, uh, then you are a predestinarian. So, complete salvation... Understood by faith is the next point we need to look at. In a writing on this topic, it's called On the Eternal Predestination of God, uh, a separate uh, book uh, that Calvin wrote. So if you want more than you find in the Institute, you can turn to uh, Calvin's uh, treatise on the eternal predestination of God. And in that book he says this, election precedes faith as to its divine order, but is understood by faith. So what is he what is he saying there? Let's take the divine order. We have election First, then faith, God elects, gives the person faith, chief work of the Holy Spirit, which produces a believer, regenerates. That's the divine order. That's, you might say, God's order. But uh, the human order works uh, the other way. There is the the person, whether we want to call that person a believer at this point or not, um, may be debated. Certainly not until there is faith is the person a believer, but let's just say the potential believer. God opens his or her eyes to the truth of the gospel, and uh, there is then faith, and then faith understands election. So, what Calvin is saying here is that as we come to the gospel, we see an invitation, we accept it, that's faith, and then we realize that our faith was given to us by God who had chosen us from all eternity, that's election. So divine order is going to lead from... Election to faith to the person, uh, the human order, from the person to faith uh, to election. For us, therefore, faith is the only opening uh, into the doctrine of election. This is what Calvin says in his commentary on John 6:40. Take away faith, and election is mutilated. In other words, you can't just talk about election abstractly. Take away faith and you've damaged, destroyed the doctrine of election because no one but the Christian can even speak of God's decrees. And then that person, only because he knows himself, or she knows herself as elect through faith in Christ. Now, all of that means that by putting this doctrine where Calvin puts it, it's moved outside the realm of debate, metaphysical thought, and debate as to its fairness, for instance, to the experience of the Christian, see if you put it in Book 1, and I think this is what Calvin was wrestling with, you put it in Book 1, here is God. Before we even talk about God's creation, we have to talk about God's decrees, and part of the decrees of God would be the election of some and the reprobation of others, and that is going to produce a violent reaction on the part of some people who would say, well, that's not fair that's wrong. If that is the kind of God you're talking about, I want to have nothing to do with the Calvinist God." And uh, normally that is the, the kind of um, scenario that develops. But if the doctrine is put where Calvin puts it, it functions, you see, in a quite different way because it functions in the Institutes to answer a very specific question, and that question is, where did my faith come from? So it's the Christian who has access to this teaching, and the Christian has access to this teaching for a very specific Purpose, You might say that this doctrine is an ex post facto reflection on how, amid the darkness and death of sin, God's grace came to me. Where did my faith come from? And, of course, the answer that Calvin is going to give us uh, through these chapters is it came from God. God saved me wasn't my work. wasn't even my faith in the sense of a human work. God gave me that faith through the work of the Holy Spirit, and God saved me. You might, thinking in terms of Calvin's order, you might say, Calvin gets a person saved. That's um, justification by faith earlier in Book 3. And then he gets that person on his or her knees praying. That's chapter 20. And then he asks the question, where did your faith come from? And that's the doctrine of election. And you see, in that context, it's not going to create dispute. The Christian is going to say, came from God. All the glory goes to God, creates humility in me, confidence in me, because I know it 's the work of God and not of myself, and all the glory goes to God so in that context it 's not a it 's not an issue for argument it's um, it 's um, a call to uh, doxology now. You know, it doesn't mean that you can't teach the doctrine of election in various contexts. And I think it's a proper way to do it, as the Westminster Confession of Faith does, uh, to see it as part of the doctrine of God. Uh, You could also see it as part of Christology. We are elect in Christ, big point Karl Barth makes, and I think there's some wisdom in what Barth does, although he evaporates part of biblical teaching. Or you could see it as Calvin does in book three as part of salvation. But I think the point I'd want to make here is Calvin wanted to be sensitive pastorally to the people who were going to read the Institutes, and he felt this is the best place for these people at this time to come to grips with this teaching, and uh, that's a a challenge uh, to us too, particularly to those of you who will become pastors, because it's not only important to preach truly what the Bible says, but to get it in an order, a sequence, that will help people, and you don't have to preach everything every Sunday, not a good idea anyway. (laughs) You know, preach one thing each Sunday and lead people along step by step. And uh, you might want to keep Calvin's um, order in mind here as you plan your preaching, which basically says for Sunday you preach in the church to which you're called. It's probably not a good idea to preach on election. Wait a bit <laughs> and put it later. B.B. B. Warfield said this, it is not to cosmical predestination that Calvin's thought turned. Cosmical predestination would be book one predestination, part of the doctrine of God. But, says Warfield, rather to that soteriological predestination on which, as a helpless sinner needing salvation, from the free grace of God he must rest now another point here complete salvation it's understood by faith it answers the question where did my faith come from and it explains experience Calvin approaches the doctrine when he finally gets to it and uh, introduces it as you recall he approaches it from the standpoint of a practical question, practical concern. It's a problem, you might say, occasioned by the preaching of the gospel. gospel is preached. And what happens? Some people accept and some people don't. And how do you explain that? Why do some respond and others not? And this is how calvin gets into this doctrine in 321 one in actual fact the covenant of life is not preached equally among all men not everybody in the world receives the gospel equally some people actually never hear it some people hear it every sunday So, it's not preached equally among all people and among those to whom it is preached it does not gain the same acceptance, either constantly or in equal degree. So, those that hear it every Sunday or often, some receive it, some don't. In this diversity, Calvin says, the wonderful depth of God's judgment is made known. We'll have to look at that last sentence in more detail, but you see, Calvin says, in the, in the context of, of experience, human experience, uh, this is what happens. Some hear, some don't. Those who hear, some receive, some don't. And Calvin's, you might say, solution to that is the doctrine of election. You know, the Arminian solution really doesn't succeed. The Calvinist solution is a difficult one in some ways. We think biblical, but still difficult. The Arminian solution really doesn't take the Arminian off the hook, so to speak. The Arminian would say what the Arminian would say, God has given grace to everyone, and uh, that uh, universal grace, this is an evangelical Arminian approach like John Wesley held. God gives grace to all, universal grace, and uh, that enables Everyone, anyone, to accept, but uh, that person also has the ability to refuse. So the evangelical Arminian doesn't teach salvation by works. We're dead in sins, and there's nothing we can do unless we receive the grace of God, but everyone receives the grace of God to enable that person to make a response. But does that really help when you think about it? because so much of the world doesn't hear the gospel and uh, even though there is that universal grace given, it doesn't seem to be able to come to fruition because the person doesn't know what to do with it. So, I can't see that the Armenian solution Uh, answers uh, the problem. It's a problem whether a person is an Arminian or a Calvinist. Okay, let's uh, get into a description of the doctrine. We've seen where Calvin puts it and uh, its function and um, how he introduces it, but um, we need to to look at it um, now in some detail. The doctrine, God's election and reprobation, can be understood and described uh, with three words. I haven't put those words in the syllabus, but you can add those, and I'll follow generally the outline here. But absolute is one word that we want to uh, focus on. Particular is another word, and it's hard to know what third word to use because I want to talk about double predestination. So we'll use double. It's not a word that Calvin used. He talks about election and reprobation, but just trying to get three words to sum it up. Uh, we'll use absolute, particular, and double Absolute is a word uh, that we find uh, continually in Calvin. Just give you a couple of illustrations of this. 321.5 God adopts some to hope of life and sentences others to eternal death. Absolute statement. God adopts some to life and sentences others to death. It's a definition of election and reprobation. In that same uh, section, 321.5, he talks about God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he will to become of each man. And if we go down to 321.7, we get these words, "...to whom God not only offers salvation, but so assigns it, that the certainty of its effect is not in suspense or doubt." And you could add a lot more uh, sentences uh, to those that I have just uh, read. Election, God is the author. And it is an eternal decree and it focuses on the individual. God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he will to become of each man. So, God in his eternal decree has decreed the destiny of each person. If you look uh, into this topic in in some detail, and you'll find this more in the sermons than in the institutes, you'll see that Calvin often talks about a double election. And uh, we need to understand what he he means by this. uh, He does... um, referred to it in the Institutes 2 in 321 6, a second more limited degree of election. So what is that all about? A double election, a second more limited degree of election. Now you'll find an explanation of this um, in his sermon on Deuteronomy 10, 15 through 17. When he's talking about the, the national election of Israel, God elects the nation of Israel. God joined all Israel to his family, as Calvin says, inferior members until they cut themselves off. So there is a kind of general election. That's Israel but those who are part of that election are not eternally saved, necessarily, because they can cut themselves off. 321.7, a kind of middle way, Calvin says, between the rejection of mankind and the election of a small number of the godly. So you have all people, then you have this particular type of election of Israel, and then you have another kind of election of the godly. By the way, Calvin does use small number here. He sometimes criticize for teaching that God has elected just a few and the vast majority of the human race goes to hell. Uh, that uh, not necessarily the way we should explain Calvin, but he does here talk about a small number of the godly. The Princeton theologians, uh, Hodge and Warfield, wrote, uh, particularly Warfield, wrote on, are there few that will be saved? And Warfield's view and Hodge's view was that huge portions of humanity would be saved. But uh, you don't have that in Calvin, you don't have it in Tureton, but you do have it in the 19th century Princetonians. I won't get into the reasons why they felt that um, many people, most people in fact, would be saved. But a quotation like this from uh, Calvin 321.7, which speaks of a small number of the godly, has to be balanced by some other things Calvin says, although I don't think he ever reaches the optimism of Hodge and Warfield that uh, vast numbers will be saved, although Hodge and Warfield have a point in saying, where is the triumph of the cross? And uh, as you look at uh, what the New Testament says about the gospel, it seems to say not just one or two, but... It will be a triumph. There will be a victory, especially as we come to the book of Revelation. But uh, Calvin does have this, this more general election. And then in 321.6, he comes uh, to this statement, a second, more limited degree of election. And then 321.7 one seven. The statement that I quote in the syllabus. To those with whom God makes a covenant, he does not at once give the spirit of regeneration that would enable them to persevere in the covenant up to the very end. Now, for a long time I struggled with that sentence because I didn't quite didn't understand what it meant. To those with whom God makes a covenant. So here's a covenant. Maybe this is the the more general election. He does not at once give the spirit of regeneration, which seems to say God makes this covenant, and then at some later point, he gives the spirit of regeneration that enable people to persevere in the covenant to the very end. But what does that mean? Now, the Latin word translated by Dr. Battles in our 1559 edition is "proteinus." Battles says it means at once. But Anthony Hokoma, in his Covenant of Grace in Calvin's teaching, argues that the word should be translated invariably. God does not invariably give the spirit of regeneration. Or, we could read it this way, to those with whom God makes a covenant, he does not, to all of them, give the spirit of regeneration. And uh, that makes a lot more sense to me, both in Calvin's uh, context and in my understanding of his theology, God makes a covenant with Israel, but he doesn't give the spirit of regeneration to everyone in Israel. There is an Israel within Israel. There is the elect nation, and there are the elect people who are part of that elect nation. Hokoma uh, points out that in the French fifteen sixty. Version, the last French version, which Calvin himself wrote translating his own Latin into French, uh, this sentence simply reads this way um, To those with whom God makes a covenant, he does not give to all of them the spirit of regeneration. So the French. Version seems to agree with the Hokama translation of protinus as invariably. I'm, I'm lost on the whole idea of um, either the general election or the uh, this kind of general covenant. This time, so, mm-hmm. also Yeah, you... yeah, two two elections. Calvin says, or you could say two covenants. He talks about two elections: general election. And he's talking about Israel. The context is the Old Testament nation of Israel. And uh, he then says within that general covenant there is a particular covenant or a special election. And it is to those elect people that God gives the spirit of regeneration. See, basically, this is just an, a. Uh commentary on what was going on in the Old Testament era. That's right. Yes. And you know, Paul deals with that too in Romans, and it's one of the passages that uh, people use that want to deny individual election. They would say it's national. God chooses Israel. has nothing to do with individuals within Israel. So it's Calvin's attempt to say there is a national election, but that doesn't void the individual election. Uh, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Romans also says, so that seems to be quite individual. And it's, it's the way Calvin would uh, read uh, the Old Testament. Uh, he puts it uh, this way in 321.7. 7. God was continually gathering his church from Abraham's children rather than from profane nations, so sets up the covenant with Abraham and then he elects from within that first election, of course all this is done in eternity past, it's not a present tense operation, those that uh, he will give, uh, to whom he will give the spirit of regeneration. I have found uh, in his commentary on Luke one fifty five that Calvin says this, God had all mankind in mind from the first. So when he says God is just uh, calling people from Israel, he doesn't forget the rest of humanity. God had all mankind in mind uh, from the first. But now that Christ has come, the adoption has been extended to all nations. So, in a sense, that that universal covenant, that more general covenant, which was made with Israel, could now be viewed as a kind of universal covenant uh, made to all nations. Question? Uh, You were actually starting to answer my question. There was that next quote. Okay. Uh, That was my question. was the issue. In the Old Testament, where you see more than just Israel believing. So I had always thought about that. I had thought about this two covenant idea. Uh-huh. I wonder what you think of this. Okay. But I was thinking, you know, a more particular covenant of truly elect persons extended to many people more than just those that were in Israel because of them. You hear know, the Gentile over here and the other person. Yeah. is that, Is that basically what you're saying in that second quote? But it seemed to happen before Christ. It's, It did, and I'm not sure Calvin deals with that. Uh, We'd have to look at some of the Old Testament passages uh, in his commentaries. You know, when he's explaining the difference and similarity between the covenants, um, one (coughs) difference is the Old Testament is for Israel, and now um, the New Testament is for everyone. So we move from one nation to all nations. But I'm sure Calvin is not going to deny uh, that even though God is gathering his elect from Israel, that he has forgotten about or is disinterested in the nations, the quote from Luke one fifty five: God had all mankind in mind from the first. But uh, those are kind of exceptions, rare individuals. But now that Christ has come, the adoption has been extended to all nations. So, in a sense, he's, he's not using uh, election there. He was using adoption, which seems to say. All nations are adopted. That doesn't mean that every person in all of those nations is regenerated or is elect. But uh, God now gathers from all the world equally um, his elect. Being extended, in a sense? that's the way I would see it the general covenant is extended from one nation to all nations and God gathers his elect from all nations whereas in the old covenant he gathered his elect from Israel mostly <laughs> I think we have to make a, a qualification there Or here's the commentary on Acts 3.25. Although the common election be not effectual in all, so he's using election here, the common election be not effectual in all, yet it may set open a gate for the special elect. So even in the New Testament period, he's still thinking in terms of common election and special election election. That's not a theme that uh, Reformed faith has developed, and I think we would have to think about whether this is a helpful way of seeing it or not, but I just wanted to get into that so that uh, you would understand it to some degree uh, when you get uh, into reading uh, Calvin. Okay, we've talked about election now. God is the author, eternal, individual. Despite these uh, references referring to common election, but now we understood, understand what, what that means, uh, the special election, secret election, or second more limited degree of election um, focuses on the individual. Become to uh, reprobation, and we'll probably uh, end it uh, with this today, maybe a little further. As I said um, already, uh, Calvin defines election and reprobation as That decree by which God compacts with it himself, I think he means there there's no extraneous external compulsion. This is God's own decision, not uh, affected by anything but God's will. He compacts with it himself what will happen to each person. We could call that double predestination. Not Calvin's term. I think the first person to use that, uh, the idea of double predestination, was Isidore of Seville, medieval um, theologian who stood in that Augustinian tradition, that full Augustinian tradition. So, 321 5, God adopts some. The hope of life and sentences others to eternal death. God's eternal decree by which he compacted within himself what he willed to become of each person. 321.7 God once established by his eternal and unchangeable plan those whom he long before determined once for all to receive into salvation and those whom, on the other hand, he would devote to destruction. So, I don't think you can deny that Calvin holds the double predestination, even though he doesn't use that term. He, he doesn't just talk about predestination, election to salvation, and ignore the rest. That would be single predestination. Nor does he always, although he can do this, say God elects some and passes over the others, preterition. He will use that language, but he will also use language like in these quotations that I have just given, which emphasize God's positive decree, both in terms of the elect and the dam. Now, that poses some, some huge problems. And uh, one thing uh, we need to say is that Calvin, when he says this, so he says it uh, again and again in 323.7, we get it again. It's that context in which he says, the decree is dreadful indeed. Sometimes translated awful, indeed. But I think we need to understand what it it means there. the The Latin word is the word that looks like horrible. The decree is horrible, indeed. But when Calvin uses that Latin word horrible three twenty three seven, uh, he doesn't mean by it. We generally mean by the word horrible. It's not an accusation of God. Uh, Battles translates it dreadful. And uh, that's probably as good as we can do. Awesome would be another possibility. So, Calvin certainly doesn't draw back from saying what he thinks he has to say based on his understanding of Scripture. But uh, he... He doesn't rejoice in it, certainly, and he he feels the the force of what he's saying. It's an awesome, a dreadful thing to think of the reprobation of people. Now, one thing I want to say about this, and I'm not going to say it today. I think we'll stop here, so I'll be able to start with uh, cause and ground next time, cause and ground of election and reprobation. Uh, we've looked at definitions of election and reprobation. And um, in reprobation, we have God is the author, it's eternal, it's individual. Just as we had for election, God is the author, it's eternal, it's individual. But a big question is this, does Calvin give equal ultimacy to both election and reprobation. In other words, as we finish this study next time, we want to answer that question. Do these things hang perfectly balanced? You know, like a mobile that you get uh, for your child's crib and everything is balanced. Just all something on this side, something on that side. Same. Is it That these two doctrines are equally ultimate? That's one question. Second, are these two doctrines equally balanced? That's another question. So I won't uh, answer those as yet, but uh, we'll spend uh, some more time uh, next week looking at uh, cause and ground and then the goal of election and reprobation. Some objections to predestination. Uses: How do we use this doctrine? What is what is its use for us in our spiritual lives and in our preaching? And then finally, a critique: is Calvin, right or wrong? Important point. We'll have to think about. Okay. See you uh, next Tuesday. You're listening to Calvin's Institutes, Lesson 16.